0: We use what they call the talk in office. It's a national code. The word George means good. So if you're my partner and I tell you, here comes George, you know that here comes a sucker.
1: This is Jack Farrell, or Fast Jack as he's better known. Jack is a card shark and dice manipulator. One of the best that ever lived, and as chance would have it, got caught.
0: We had a word for every card. Ace would be play, uh, two was off, three is there. I could tell my partner what card I needed or vice versa in front of the players, and they knew nothing.
1: I'm Maria Konnikova, and this is The Grift, my podcast about con artists and the lives they ruin. I've spent years researching and writing about con games of all types, I've immersed myself in the world of the con, spent countless hours with grifters and their victims, and countless more poring over accounts of the con games that have been around for centuries and continue to operate to this day. Over the next 10 episodes, I'm going to bring you some of the stories that struck me the most. Remarkable stories of brazen deceit, imposters, liars, cheats, But those stories are just a gateway to the real question I want to explore. The one that, to me, is the single most fascinating thing about the grift. Why do we fall for these con artists time and time again? How do they get people to let down their defenses and hand over everything? How do con artists continue to thrive no matter what we try to do to stop them? You might think you won't fall for Jack, since I just told you he's an
0: infamous card shark. But don't be so sure you're immune. I played in a poker game. Can I give you this fast story? Jack's over six
1: feet tall, now pushing 80 years old. He wears a newsboy cap, big wire-rimmed glasses, a sport jacket. You can tell from his accent he's a New Englander through and through. One day, he's at a poker tournament where he's winning, of course. Another player confronts him in the men's room and accuses him of cheating.
0: I said, kid, how old are you? He says, I'm 25. I says, 25? What are you kidding? I said, I've been playing Texas Hold'em for over 50 years. 30 of it was with my boy Doyle. He says, Doyle Bronson? I said, of course, what do you think? I was from Texas originally. He's, oh, I can't believe it. I says, but cheating is something that I wouldn't think about doing.
1: That's vintage, Jack. Backed into a corner, he talks his way out time and time again. Of course, he's not from Texas. But even with Jack's New England accent, the younger player believes him. And of course, cheating is exactly what Jack was doing in that tournament. And let's just note something else here. Who knows if the story we just heard is even true? When you listen to Jack, listen with one ear open. Still, he fascinates me because he's an undisputed leader in the vast world of crooked gambling. Over multiple decades, Jack has cheated everyone from Average Joes to John Wayne and Frank Sinatra. Now, we only have his word for those particular stories since all the other principals are dead. And when it comes to cheating, only the cheater can verify what he actually did unless he gets caught. And Jack was usually too good for that. But we do know he was in the same place at the same time. And we know that cheating is what he does best. Jack has worked for mafias in several states and on several continents. As Jack tells it, he's lived a life of intrigue, visiting 28 countries, staying in fancy hotels. Once, he even found himself at the wedding of a Russian mob boss's daughter. He risked torture and death at the hands of powerful and unsavory men, He played with the best, and he risked it all with the best. But he came from far humbler beginnings in a large working-class family where nobody had seen a deck of cards or pair of dice in their lives. So how did poor old John Farrell turn himself into Fast Jack, the great hustler? Well, for one thing, He learned how to manipulate his mark, how to gain people's trust and play on their emotions. His first big skill wasn't dexterity or physical manipulation. It was psychological manipulation. I noticed it working on me right away. From the first moment he began talking, Jack had me pegged as a young lady who might sympathize with his plight.
0: I came from an Irish Catholic family. We were very poor when I grew up. There were five boys and I'm six feet tall and the other four were taller than me. So my mother had a, a tremendous burden. We were extremely, extremely poor. And uh, I don't even think about it because it, uh, it uh, really bothers me. So, excuse me.
1: Maybe Jack's family history is upsetting. It certainly sounds it, but I've been interviewing people for over a decade, and I can say with certainty that most don't tear up two minutes into a conversation. It usually takes me quite a bit of time to warm my interview subjects up, but con artists like Jack are an entirely different story.
0: So, as each of us graduated, we went into the military, and... uh, I spent three years in the United States Army and came back to Manchester in 1961, and I had no direction at all. I didn't know what I was going to do.
1: But he knew exactly what he wouldn't do. He didn't want to work a nine-to-five, and he couldn't bear to be poor. He may have been directionless, but he was certainly scrappy. And soon, he found work as a bartender.
0: I start hanging around this bar room, and a year later, I owned the bar.
1: A few months after he started bartending, Jack got into a minor car accident. He got $10,000 in damages, and he used that money to buy the bar. Or anyway, that's how he tells it. So he has a small business now, and then one of the regulars changes the course of Jack's life.
0: There was a gentleman that came in there almost every day. He was the local bookmaker. Uh, In them days, a bookmaker was a person that would take bets on the horses. And uh, he was a real Damon Runyon character, always dressed in a sport coat, suit or tie, and always had a brand new Thunderbird.
1: We'll call this guy Jim. One day, Jim suggests that Jack start a regular Friday night poker game at the bar. This is the 1960s, one of the great eras of backroom gambling in America. Casinos are legal only in a couple of parts of the country, but people still love games that pit skill against chance. Cards, dice, everyone wants to get together in smoky rooms, bet money, and generally lose it. But not Jim. Jim doesn't lose a penny.
0: He was the one that won all the money, and this was every Friday. One night I caught what he was doing, but I didn't say anything. I waited till everyone left. I sat him down and I told him, I don't want my money back, but I want you to teach me how to do this. That was the beginning. And he taught me about cards and then he started showing me about dice, how I could alter the odds in any game that I played.
1: Jack learned how to deal cards so he'd always get the best hand in a game of poker. He learned how to paint extra dots on a set of dice so the odds would always be in his favor. He learned how to switch out the standard dice for the ones he tampered with, and he could do it seamlessly without anybody noticing.
0: I decimated everybody. I was like he put a machine gun in my hand, and I wasn't too sharp, too smart at the time because I was beating my base, the steady customers. And three years later, I looked around at the bar and I was sitting by myself. They'd probably owe me a $1,000 or $500, and they couldn't pay it, so they wouldn't come in.
1: The better Jack's sleight of hand became, the further he ran his legitimate business into the ground. He didn't yet grasp the principle of letting your mark win, if only for a bit, if only some of the time. He went straight for the jugular. But if you're conning people in your own business, you want to bleed them slowly. Soon enough, he'd bled his base dry. He needed new marks, new people to swindle. Luckily, word got out that an expert manipulator was operating out of Connecticut. And a few other pros invited him to join them in a racket that tapped into the essence of old New England, the clam bake. People would pass the time at clam bakes by betting on dice and cards. And people in a betting mood are easy marks. For Jack, this was the era when things began to take off.
0: I decided one day that I'm gonna do this full time.
1: Jack closed down his bar and committed fully to his new career as a hustler. He was tenacious about mastering his skills. He practiced every day. Says he even flew to Pittsburgh and paid a man a hefty sum to teach him the art of cold decking.
0: Cold decking is switching one deck for another, for a prearranged deck, and it's very difficult to do. And there was only a few of us in America that could do this.
1: But more than anything else, it was Jack's charm that made him win every time.
0: The physical part was 10%. The 90% was to be accepted by my opponents. with the Cards or dice, it's all about using good judgment, knowing when to make a move, knowing when to do it, and you have to be really, really sociable. And I always had somewhat of a good personality. and. People liked me almost immediately, and that wasn't no put on. I was just, I like people. I just like talking to people, and that went over into my business, which helped me tremendously.
1: Maybe Jack really does like people, but clearly he didn't like them enough to stop cheating them out of their money.
0: Once I won the player over, he might as well just hand me his money. He didn't know it, but he was a piece of cake. <laughs> I always wanted to know the type of people I was gambling against. The two professions that I used to really, really get excited about was, number one, car salesmen. I loved to beat them because they knew it all. They didn't know much when I got through with them. And the second ones were attorneys, lawyers. I used to like to beat lawyers.
1: As far as Jack could tell, lawyers were even bigger hustlers than he was. Taking clients' money, fast-talking judge and jury alike, it was a thrill to beat them at their own game. Jack was on a roll and he had no intention of stopping, even though the stakes were getting higher and higher. Jack's hustling had started innocently enough in his bar, but now that he was playing for more cash and winning more money, cheating was much riskier. People hate losing, but they hate a cheater even more. And the people Jack cheated were not exactly soft-hearted. Once he even decided to cheat a group of police officers. Probably not his smartest decision.
0: He said, you gotta do me a favor, don't come here anymore.
1: Suffice it to say, as a young hustler, Jack took a few beatings. He got his leg and nose broken, his hip dislocated, Several times, he says, he was threatened at gunpoint. But things were about to get even dicier for Jack. We'll hear how after the break. When we left off, Fast Jack was working the clambakes of New England. Within a few years, Jack met Billy Grosso, who ran dice games in New Haven.
0: And Billy was an up-and-coming mafioso and... He became a made member of La Casa Nostra. He liked me, liked my abilities if he didn't like me, but I know he liked me. He called me up and I met him in Hamden at the Friendly's ice cream parlor. We sat in the booth. Then he said to me, Jack, are you with me? I said, what do you mean am I with you? Of course I'm with you. I'm sitting here, aren't I? And I wasn't too hip to mob lingo. He said, don't be a wise guy. He said, Jack, if you're not with me, go get a lunch pail and go to work. Because you're not going to do anything in Connecticut. And then a bell went off, and I said, aha. Uh-huh. I said, yeah, I'm with you.
1: And that sealed Jack's fate. He didn't become a member of the mob, but he was working with them. He would give them a cut of his winnings, and in return, he says, they would provide him with the muscle, money, or even bullets if he got himself into a scrape. Now, he was in deep. At this point, it's the mid-70s. Jack has been switching dice and counting cards for almost 15 years, and he's distinguishing himself as one of the best.
0: I was somewhat of an innovator with dice and somewhat with cards also. And I got into magnetism, permanent mags and electromagnets.
1: The way magnetism works is you put magnets on your body or under the table and you insert tiny magnets into the dice. It's subtle, but the dice get pulled to your advantage. And lo and behold, you're on a literal roll. One night at a clam bake, Jack meets a guy from a gambling crew from New York. Impressed with Jack's dice skills, he invites him to New York to work with them.
0: I thought going into New York City was really the major, major leagues. And I was a little reluctant because I didn't know how good I was. And I asked him, I said, do you think I'm capable? He said, capable. He said, you're the best I've ever seen, switch dice. So I started going into New York. And it was real easy because a lot of them New Yorkers, they think they're pretty cute. They think they're pretty smart because they live in New York. Well, nothing's further from the truth in my business.
1: Pretty soon, Jack is spending every weekend on the road, traveling around Boston and New York, hitting the big cities and small towns in between. At every stop, he has permission of the local mafia. And when Jack shows up, it's as a casual weekend gambler at games above shops or in the backs of clubs. In truth, he and other card sharks are using their code words in sleight of hand to separate the other recreational gamblers from their money.
0: And I have to be honest with you, I loved what I did. It was, hustling for me was, my business was my mistress. There wasn't a better high if I did a piece of work and I finished at two in the morning, I probably fell asleep at six in the morning because the adrenaline was flowing, you know. It was a real high for me. I think most people can understand that.
1: Being good at your job, it's a rush. Even if your job is cheating others, There's something nice about knowing that you're as good as they come, that no one can compete with you, that you're irreplaceable. Jack was in his 30s then, married with kids, living in Connecticut, and he was providing very nicely for them financially. They had a big house in the suburbs, a swimming pool. He was, on most any count, a success. But he was never around on weekends, which his wife hated Of course, that's not to say the job didn't have its perks. Every year, Jack and his friends in the mob would put on their tuxedos and sneak into the Screen Actors Guild convention at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York. After the dinner and all the speeches, when the guests were tipsy, he'd set up a dice table in one of the suites. That's how he ended up meeting, and cheating, John Wayne, Frank Sinatra, and dozens of other famous actors. They were the perfect marks, flush with cash. But Jack's arrangement with the Mafia didn't always work in his favor. Not only was he paying kickbacks on all his winnings, he was also dealing with Billy Grosso, the mobster Jack met at Friendlies. Jack says Billy was not friendly. He would always say... You already got one foot in the grave. And he'd say it like he was joking. That was his trademark. Jack wanted to expand his horizons. He didn't like feeling like he was beholden to someone. He didn't like feeling that someone had an eye on his grave. Jack had heard that Europe might be a ticket out. In Europe, there was no American mob. There were high rollers aplenty, and the penalty for illegal gambling was a slap on the wrist, a far cry from the puritanical mores of New England. His chance came in 1974. One afternoon, Jack walked into a store called Edwards Gambling Supply in New York. And there, he met the man who would open the European market to him, Yorgo Vassiloris. Yorgo was originally from Greece, but had been living in Berlin for over 30 years. The idea was that Yorgo would bring Jack to private gambling rings, and in return, Jack would give him a cut of the winnings. Yorgo knew the gambling scene in Germany, so that's where they'd begin their work. There was only one problem. Yorgo didn't speak a word of English.
0: So I went to the payphone and called a Greek friend of mine in Hartford and put them two on the phone and he did the translation. And two hours later, he was driving up to Connecticut with me and he stayed at my house for a week. Lo and behold, shortly after, I was in Berlin shooting dice and winning the Deutsche Marks.
1: Jack says he spent so much time working in Germany that he learned the language. But he wasn't fluent enough to keep the other gamblers' suspicions at bay.
0: As long as you... You lose your money. Nobody's going to ask you anything. But as soon as you start winning, here comes the questions. So he needed a cover. I'm at JFK at the Pan Am building, and I pick up one of those airline magazines, and I'm scanning through it because uh, I'm just a little itchy. I want to get going. I want to get on this plane and get over to Hanover. And I see a story about Tasmania, which is an island on the southern coast of Australia. I said, wow, this is my cover. And there's a couple reasons why I use Tasmania. Number one, in Australia, they speak English. And my native language is English. And number two, there are very few people that know about Tasmania. So I'm not gonna get caught with lying or telling a false story about Tasmania. And I'm gonna read a little about it. And as I was getting ready to board the plane, I had still had a little time left and I saw the hat store and I went in and I bought a, a hat like Crocodile Dundee and a big belt with a big buckle like they do in Australia.
1: And then he gets on the plane, lands in Hanover and arrives at the gambling party. It's a series of games over the course of a couple of weeks with a lot of the same people coming back to each game. And this time, Jack has a specific mark, a very wealthy businessman he calls Verna. Soon enough, Jack is taking Verna for tens of thousands of dollars in each game. So, of course, Verna begins to ask questions.
0: And Verna said to me in German, Jack, what'd you do, fall out of the sky? Where are you from? So I told him that I was from Tasmania. Well, what are you doing, Tasmania? Tasmania. I told him I own a 9,000 acre ranch. In Tasmania, it's called Hectacre Ranch. And he says, what do you do with the ranch? I says, I have two things I do. I raise kangaroos and I have crocodiles. And the crocodiles we use for leather, like the belt I have on, and kangaroo. And I explained all about kangaroo, how it's got no cholesterol, And uh, I said, the reason why I'm in Europe is because I'm setting up a marketing business. I said, we flash freeze the kangaroo flesh in Tasmania, and we ship it to Switzerland, and I'm just getting ready to start marketing it in supermarkets in Europe. And I said, in fact, I'm gonna get 20 pounds. Yeah, Jack, I want 20 kilos, not 20 pounds. I said, you got it. And I said, a year from now, It's not going to be Wiener schnitzel, it's going to be kangaroo schnitzel. And I said, you remember what I'm telling you. So he got a kick out of there, and he accepted it. I never got him the kangaroo flesh. I wish I had, but... Who knows
1: if the great kangaroo hoax was ever perpetrated? In the world of the con, most stories lie beyond the means of fact-checking. Fake names, assumed identities shady games in which no one will ever admit to having played. But here's the thing. It doesn't particularly matter if things went down just the way Jack says. It's entertaining. He's entertaining. And as you listen to Jack laying on the charm, you can see how this or some flavor of it would be incredibly believable. You can see how easy it would be to fall under the sway of his storytelling charisma. It's a dangerous and powerful weapon, storytelling. The best storyteller wins. The best stories make us want to believe them, and we let down our defenses to let them in. Whatever exactly happened during those games, Jack went back to the U.S., and used the money he made in Germany to start a couple of his own gambling clubs in New York, with the blessing of the mob, of
0: course. We were really doing some business. But in June 16th of 1989, Billy Grasso's body was found in Wethersfield, Connecticut, at a place called the Wethersfield Cove.
1: Remember Billy Grasso, that up-and-coming mafioso Jack met at an ice cream parlor? His death changed everything for Jack.
0: The day after it happened, I guess the next day, I I went under FBI surveillance.
1: The FBI started investigating the Mafia ring around Billy Grasso. Jack got caught up in that investigation. And in 1990, the FBI had enough evidence to arrest him.
0: There were 10 guys involved in the Billy Grasso case, and uh, most of them were conspiracy to murder. of course I wasn't, I was on the bottom list. I was told by the FBI that if I cooperated, that I didn't have to go to prison. And I told the FBI agent, if I cooperated, what would you think of me? I said, you wouldn't think too much of me. Me being a guy that's been going up and down highways for 40 years, gambling, and all of a sudden I have a problem, and right away I'm going to roll over. I said, that's not me.
1: Not to mention the fact that if Jack had talked, The mafia might have
0: killed him. So I guess you have to do what you have to do. And consequently, I was sentenced to 33 months in federal prison. And my two charges were interstate gambling to aid racketeering and interstate travel to aid racketeering because I did business with the mob and they were getting the slice of the pie.
1: Jack was sentenced to two years and nine months in Allenwood Federal Prison out in rural Pennsylvania. After decades of running gambling rings, the law had finally caught up with him. But this is Jack we're talking about. And Jack is the kind of guy who, against all odds, manages to land on his feet.
0: My job was in the, um, Gee, I never talk about this. I'm surprised I'm talking about
1: it. I'm not. Jack's launching into a story about how he started teaching a
0: prison guard his tricks. He said, Jack, teach me these moves. So for a year, I taught him in his office card manipulation. So one day he came to work. He said, Jack, I got to tell you something. So I went to the office. He handed me $150. I said, what is this? He said, I beat a guy playing gin rummy for $300. I'm giving you half. I said, I don't want them, but I don't want high. I had nowhere to spend $150 because you couldn't have cash. I said, but what you can do, there's a ponderosa down in your little hick town here. I said, go in here and give me a half a chicken or a steak. And when you come to work, stop at a supermarket and get me a gallon of ice cream. So that's how I spent the 150 $150.
1: Jack got out a couple of months early and then spent three years on supervised release. At the end of it, in 1996, he checked in one last time with his parole officer.
0: And uh, he said to me, Jack, he said, what are you gonna do with the rest of your life? I said, geez, I'm glad you asked Steve. I said, let me ask you a question. What would you do at 57 years old if all you did your whole life was gamble? Well, I don't know. I guess I'd probably do the same thing. I said, you said the magic word. And I pulled out my airline ticket the next day. I left for Berlin. And I stayed for almost a year until I made a significant amount of money.
1: That's right. Jack says he told his parole officer that he was going to Germany to break the law there. So if a stint in federal prison didn't stop Jack from hustling, Did it at least stop him from hustling in the U.S.?
0: Nope. I never really stopped uh, up until six months ago. I had a little piece of business in Fairfax County, Virginia. There's no more private gambling. It's finished. It's done. I mean, people, are they going to go into a back room and gamble? As opposed to going to a casino and getting complimentary drinks and food and lodging. So there is no more private gambling in America. I didn't stop. That's what made me stop. Jack
1: didn't stop because he wanted to stop. He didn't stop because he realized he was doing anything wrong. He stopped because market conditions had changed. The world or at least his home turf, was moving past the private underground gambling club. And it's far harder, if not impossible, to manipulate cards and dice in a proper casino than at your club or a home game. In his own words, he didn't stop. He was made to stop. At heart, Jack remains a hustler, someone who kept hustling as long as he possibly could long after most people would have called it quits. That's what con artists do. Even when they have opportunities to go straight, they don't take them. They love what they do far too much to change. Sleight of hand and misdirection have always been second nature to Jack. And I'm not just talking about Jack's literal sleight of hand with a deck of cards or a set of dice. I'm talking about something much more insidious, a trait shared by almost all of the con artists we encounter. The real sleight of hand, the real con, happened when Jack distracted his marks with his words and his charm. When Jack regaled the German businessman Werner with his fantastical stories from Australia. When he says he's from Texas and knows poker playing legends. When he draws me in with his sob stories about his childhood. While we're busy being charmed, the con artist is doing his work. Whether it's switching dice or cheating us in one of a million other ways. It's classic misdirection. That's Jack's greatest asset. Sure, it's hard not to like Jack. I like him. He's wonderful, funny, charming. But that's the thing about the best con artists. Their charisma knows no bounds. It's all part of the hustle. Deception doesn't work without charm because we want people to charm us. At its core, the art of the grift is the art of the storyteller. And the more charming The Grifter, the more enticing, the more successful The Grift. The Grift is produced by Odelia Rubin, Shoshi Shmulevitz, and Jacob Smith. Our editor is Julia Barton, and our fact checker is Jen Schwartz. Ben Levin composed our music. Special thanks to the Panoply management team, Mia Lobel, Laura Mayer, and Andy Bowers.